Hello and welcome to the October instalment of The Shameless Book Club. This month we read Aussie author Diana Reid's second novel, Seeing Other People. Seeing Other People follows two sisters, Eleanor and Charlie, living two very different lifestyles in Sydney after lockdown. When the novel begins, Eleanor has a corporate job and is in a relationship with Mark. Charlie is an actress living in a share house with friends, namely her longtime crush, Helen. Then all these characters suddenly collide and Eleanor and Charlie's seemingly sturdy bond is put to the ultimate test. Seeing Other People examines morality, desire and the battle between selflessness and self-love. I interviewed the very clever Diana Reid about Seeing Other People last week, which we will play in the second half of this episode. Woohoo! I'm so excited to hear that. As you can already hear, I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Michelle Andrews and Sarah McDonald. Hi! Sorry, we didn't wait to be introduced. We just jumped right in there. I'm itching for this episode. I cannot wait to debrief. I am so excited. Spoiler alert, this is, as I've said, the best book I've read in a very long time. <laughs> I always do this. I already said that on Instagram a while ago. I'm so excited to talk about this. Yes, me too. And as always, let's start where we always start. Let's talk about the author of this book, Diana Reed. Zara, would you like to kick us off? I absolutely would. I mean, anyone who... I don't actually know. People probably wouldn't know this. I don't to be like anyone who... Nah, you probably wouldn't know this. I loved Love and Virtue. I do think I've mentioned that on Shameless before. Love and Virtue was Diana Reid's first book. And I, for that reason, was incredibly nervous to read this. I mean, I think what makes me sick is that Diana started writing Love and Virtue when she was just 24 and it was one of the cleverest books I read in a long time. That book left me thinking for a long while about just big questions mm. about people and interactions. You have raised little bits of that book with me in like random conversations for maybe a year. (laughs) So you can imagine then when it comes to this book, as I said, I was nervous because Diana won the Sinning Morning Herald Best Young Novelist Award. Love and Virtue won the book of the year at the Australian Book Industry Awards, which is kind of the only awards that exist in Australia for books. So we've got. Yes, exactly. So I do also want to spoiler and say I love this book just as much as I loved Love and Virtue. They're very different books though. Yeah, I do think Diana Reid, congratulations if she's listening, gets the award for hottest book covers we've ever covered. Love and Virtue's book cover hottest book I've ever seen. <laughs> this, very close. This is second. hotter. This is the first thing I bring up in my interview. <laughs> <laughs> is it really? <laughs> A hot book cover so hot. goes a long way. Mm. And I think whoever designed it, very, very good job. It really hits who it needs to hit, which is the women sitting around this table and it the people like us. us. Yeah. Have you read Love and Virtue, Michelle? I have not. Look, mm-hmm. to be really transparent with the listeners, anyone who has been following Shameless for a while probably can imagine why I don't really like to dive into books that really focus on consent and sexual assault, which apparently yes. it does. So I wasn't really wanting to dive into that. I feel like if I'm going to go for that content, I'll read an essay or something short and sharp, not a whole book on it. Yeah. And I told you enough about it. I was I don't think this one's for you, but I think you can appreciate why I loved it. You read it, Annabelle. I read it. Weirdly, I read Love and Virtue after seeing other people. And Ah. also, while I was reading both of these books, I had the Zara mentality of I'm on holiday. And I think I do enjoy books more when I'm on holiday because I read both of these books when I was overseas. I love Zara McDonald. I don't think that's a Zara mentality. (laughs) I just think that's a fact. That is, yeah. (laughs) When you're not reading for work, suddenly it becomes more enjoyable. I think the other thing that I found very interesting is I read an interview with Diana in The Guardian on the launch of this book. And she said, with this book, I wanted people to feel like they were reading a Diana Reid book. And having read both of her books now, I think she did a really, really good job of that is I think her style now is incredibly distinct. Mm. That's a pretty remarkable thing to do after just two books. Like I can feel a Diana book. I can see a Diana book. I can hear a Diana book already with just two books. Pretty incredible. I want to throw something out there. Mm -hmm. I feel like Diana Reid, having now stalked her on social media and reading this book, is a bit like Zara McDonald. Or maybe Zara McDonald's a bit like Diana Reid. Oh. What, do, what do we mean I don't by know. That? An intellect. <laughs> I think Smart the, way, no. the way you consider the world and like even her Instagram captions and stuff, I just get a distinct yes. Zara McDonald vibe. Yes. And you love that. Look at her. <laughs> no, 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 I know what to do with it. Of course. It. I mean, I've said, but it's the, the awkwardness of this now is because I've said so many times on this show you that adore I'm, her. I'm a big fan. Yeah, no. I so am you've all- left me in an awkward spot. Well, <laughs> I'm a massive fan of both Zara McDonald and Diana Reid. You just have similar vibe and you both wear big collars a lot yes. oh, what that's you're saying. Easy it's like the aesthetic 
the captions on Instagram, the overall vibe. I actually think you two would be good friends if you met. No, Not to put pressure no on pressure, it. No pressure, <laughs> no pressure on it. Diana, if you're listening, I'm so embarrassed about this. <laughs> I'm cringing. Anyway. Zara, I also read that interview in The Guardian that you yes. mentioned before. And another point that I found really interesting was the interviewer was asking her about how she feels about being compared to Sally Rooney all yes. the time. And I want to read a quote for you guys. It's kind of a long one, but bear with me. Diana responds and says, I guess the more politically conscious response is that it's reductive to equate women because they're of a similar age and demographic. But I love Sally Rooney so much that I really don't care. I find it flattering. Conversations with Friends was the first book I'd read that I felt really reflected my social world. The first time that I realised that lives like mine were worthy of a literary rendering, which sounds like a crazy thing to say because, as you say, I am white and university educated, so I'm not shy of representation at all. The self-awareness, the amount of times I'm going to say self-awareness in this episode, it's so like, mm. oh my God, she's just incredible. As are you, Zara. <laughs> oh my God. If this is how we're going to roll through this episode, I'm going to exit now. I actually wanted to talk very quickly before we jumped into this book specifically about that Sally Rooney comparison, because I think when you hear Sally Rooney comparisons and then you hear discourse around Sally Rooney comparisons, everyone's like, oh, we can't compare every young author to Sally Rooney. Not every young female author is like Sally Rooney. Mm. I would say Diana has to be the closest it fits. Yes. Not because I think their writing style is particularly similar. Sally has a distinct voice. And when you're diving into a book, you know, it's a Sally book. I think now when you're diving into a Diana book, it's a Diana book. Yeah. Yes. And they are covering sort of college educated people and those kinds of things. There is that. But I do think if we're going to use the comparison, let's use it here and nowhere else. Yeah, I agree with that. I also think the dialogue, the interactions between the characters feels reminiscent of Sally Mm. Rooney to me. Like the kinds of conversations people are having, that's where it kind of makes sense. I agree. I'm so tired of seeing that on book Mm. covers, like the next Sally Rooney, da-da-da-da-da. However, the shoe does really fit in this instance. But I think they both also have things that make them different. They're both really incredible in their own right. They both do have acute observations about the world. It's that. It's razor sharp. Yes. Yes. I think it's being, and I don't even know if this is a word because I tried to write it in my notes and it just came up with that red squiggly line, but it's like being (laughs) the ultimate observationalist. Yes. It's an ability to distill things that we've all witnessed, but we haven't had the words for. Like Batuta Advocate. Yeah. I know it's not the same thing, but that's exactly what they do as well. You're able to just point things out that you see that you don't recognise. Yes, absolutely. I want to chat next about characters because there aren't too many characters in this Mm. book, which I did very much adore. Let's chat favourite characters, standout characters, characters we didn't quite like. Michelle, would you like to start? A bit of a rogue one from me to kick us off. I loved the character of the dad, the literal (laughs) father. I felt like the dad leaving the family to become a priest felt at the same time so out of left field and so utterly believable. Yes. There was something about this where I was like, I can see that happening. And I, I can understand how this certain person got to this point in their life. It was an intense journey into religion and priesthood that just really added up. And I want to read a passage from page 131 because I took a photo of this as soon as I read it, which is always the mark of a good book for me. It wasn't the newfound faith or even God that Eleanor found difficult to wrap her head around. Most of her friends were Christian and she envied their community. Seb's family was Greek Orthodox. Mark had gone to a Catholic school. It was how her father had arrived at it. His humbling was so complete from disgraced teacher to eager pupil. It looked to Eleanor like vanity. Like it wasn't enough to learn from his mistakes. Everyone had to see how much he'd improved. The evidence was in the degree, the ministerial development program, and finally in ordination. I can imagine that like some attachment of ego to this. I can just see it. And I loved that character. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, that is a rogue one to start with, but I totally, totally agree with you. And the dynamic between the sisters and the dad all just seemed very believable. I mean, you see that a lot. I wanted to have a quick note on character names before I jump into the specifics of characters because I thought the characters were named perfectly. Yeah. Perfectly. I disagree. Charlie? I thought Helen didn't strike me as a no, Helen. No, Helen was such a Helen. Sophisticated. Name, sorry, Helen's the name of like a 50-year-old. No, it's not. You haven't me. met young Helen. I, I clearly <laughs> have No, <laughs> I feel like this was perfect. I also thought Charlie as a little sister, mm. Eleanor as the older, straighter sister. I agree sister. with that. Charlie and Eleanor, perfect. Mark was absolutely... Absolutely fucking perfect. Like, I do have to say, I thought they were amazing. I want to talk about Charlie and Eleanor almost as one, and I know that might sound a little reductive, but 
genuinely these two are two of the more believable characters I've read in a really, really long time. I could see them. I feel like I know them. I'm a little sister. I have an older sister. And I definitely in many ways related to being the younger sister in this dynamic, you know, the flightier one, the one whose job is more reliant on attention (laughs) Um, (laughs) while my older sister is a criminal barrister. (laughs) Like that does make a lot of sense, like those kinds of things. But that said, I also saw parts of myself in Eleanor, like these two characters, these two women were flawed but likeable, flawed but lovable, truthfully. Mm. And I I loved that about both of them. Yeah, I agree. I had this written in the strength section of this episode, but I loved the way Diana wrote about sister relationships and particularly that like older sister, younger sister dynamic. Yeah. And Eleanor reminded me a lot of my older sister in like the nicest way possible. All of Eleanor's like really lovely protective qualities I saw in my sister. And that is why Eleanor was my favourite character. Weirdly enough, I identified with Charlie, but I didn't like Charlie. I liked Eleanor far more. I think I agree with that. That's so interesting. I liked Eleanor more. I definitely think I liked Eleanor more than Charlie. Charlie really grated on me. I want to read you out a couple of things because, again, Diana Reed's ability to distill things really captivated me when it came to the character of Charlie. Like the sentence, Charlie always had the time to admire her own pain. And then later about Charlie... The tyranny of sensitivity. I adored that as an observation because so often I think when it comes to sensitive people, it is a kind of tyranny that you have to bend to whatever they feel or however they position themselves in a certain dynamic. And the observation about how sensitivity can be a little bit manipulative even stood out to me. I've never seen that explored and I loved it. Yeah, and I think the reason I liked Eleanor more than Charlie and Annabelle I don't know if you'll agree with this at all but maybe the things that I dislike about myself most in the dynamic with my sister I saw in this book and I saw it in Charlie and I was like I don't like that like it hits a particular level of relatability yes and maybe insecurity that Mm -hmm. I have that Sometimes I'm not my best self around her. Sometimes I often feel like the more sensitive one. I think that's changing as I get older. But the ages that they're at here, when I was that age, I was far more like Charlie than Eleanor. Like you take advantage of the power dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. And that Eleanor, the Eleanor figure in your life will always be there. And that's Mm -hmm. what Eleanor was up until the point of this book. It seemed like she was always there for Charlie, no matter how like overly sensitive and younger sibling self-indulgent perhaps self-indulgent yeah what about Helen what do we think about Helen I didn't mind Helen I didn't hate Helen I didn't hate any of the characters in this book I liked Helen more than I liked Mark. What? I, <laughs> Helen was one of my favourite characters. I'm I really surprised to hated hear. Helen. Oh, okay. So I'm sensing oh tension here. <laughs> oh, what All did right. I miss? Let's unpack this. Okay. So I just, I felt like fine about Helen. She seemed obviously a bit selfish. She, she seemed quite judgy about the people in her life that she was supposed to care about, like her friends. She was a capital W wanker. And I've seen them in my life. Oh my, okay. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay. <laughs> Can I address what you just said, yes, Annabelle, before we get to capital W wanker? <laughs> Don't know if Diana Reed would say that. So maybe you're not that alike. <laughs> Diana might have written that exactly for that reason. Okay, I want to address the Helen spoke badly about people, almost maybe bitchy. Mandy. The yeah, Mandy the Mandy. Okay, thing. all right. So uh, I found this quote that kind of analysed that Mandy situation from the other angle to be really compelling. When Diana Reed wrote, it was as if Charlie thought that being a good person meant never saying anything bad about anyone or that you couldn't analyse someone without judging them, without assuming a superior position. Helen, who was genuinely interested in other people, certainly didn't consider herself superior to anyone. She just didn't think you could get to the bottom of people without dissecting their flaws. I agree, Helen was fucked in that instance. I have seen so many people do that in real life, though, where you make a snide comment about someone, they approach the group, and then the snide comment is turned into, oh, I was actually just saying something lovely about you. I actually found Charlie more irritating in that instance. I find it to be immature that you can't ever make a critical observation about the people in your life. I don't think it's Because that's me. I did find – I found it to be immaturity on Charlie's part – and maturity that Helen and Eleanor could have conversations like that without it being some evil thing. The part that I I wonder if we're all talking about is a scene on page 98 where Helen and Charlie are at the beach and Helen's talking about Mandy and says, she's a funny woman, but she's not an artist. And then 
the passage went on. It distressed Charlie, the confidence with which Helen delivered these assessments. It made Charlie feel, as a conversation partner, that she lacked conviction as well as taste. And as a potential object of analysis, the future subject of these declarations, she was terrified. Charlie said, I don't think she claims to be. And then Helen said, you're right. And then Helen went on and said she just wants to be famous and kind of made fun of the fact that the ceiling for her career is a Netflix special. And then when Mandy came up, she says, oh, we were just talking about you. That's the interaction we're talking about. I took a totally different tact with that. I think there's something kind of, I don't want to say sociopathic because that's too far, (laughs) but I do think to bitch about someone and then to have them enter the conversation and to say to their face, we were actually complimenting you. It's two-faced. You didn't have to say that. You didn't have to say that. I agree that we've all spoken ill of people. There is Mm, no doubt about that. mm. I agree with that passage that you have to dissect people's character in order to understand more about the world. Mm. I wholly subscribe to that. But you do not need to look someone in the eye and say, we were just complimenting you on the one thing you No, 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 that's And I do think the capital W wanker comes from but she's not an artist. Like, get fucked. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. But I'm just maybe not as offended by someone who might be a bit wanky compared to two people in the book who actively chose to hurt their sister. I also think for me when it comes to Helen, the other thing in that exchange that I really related to is hearing someone go really hard at someone out of nowhere and for you to think straight away, what do you say about me behind my back? Yeah. Like there is – we were talking about this, Annabelle, the mm. other day in the office about – suddenly being privy to to people's really harsh comments that are sort of beyond that level of analysis and you start to wonder this is toxic and also now I don't trust you because I don't know what you'd say about me if you are this two-faced. Like is this kind of behaviour tied to a deep insecurity of yours that means that you talk about everyone like this? Yeah. Mm. It's quite like I agree with you Mish I think lots of people do it but I think it's a quality that for me when it happens I sense it and I immediately go I don't know if I want to be friends with you. Like, like a neon red flag. Yeah. Like a not a neon flag. red flag but a red flag. A red it, makes, flag. it makes me nervous. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yes. I think that's all fair enough. I think maybe the words of Helen were some of the most like off-putting in the book but Charlie actively having an emotional affair with her sister's boyfriend via email and text messages and all that shit and then still positioning herself as the victim after doing that and using the Helen and Eleanor relationship to make her the victim all of a sudden knowing that she had actively engaged in an emotional affair for months made her the villain out of all the characters I found her to be far more unlikable I think what's interesting to me is what we consider the most villainous because I agree if you put all of these crimes in the context of the book in front of you yeah I think Charlie is the quote-unquote villain I think when it comes to likability I look at these characters genuinely over the course of a lifespan and I think from what I understood of Charlie and what I read of Charlie is like this is a blip for both Charlie and Eleanor Mm. and fundamentally I find them better people than Helen and that the lifespan of likability is different. Like I know this is a dumb point but when Charlie confronted Helen about the photos and Helen sat there and I just found Helen to be constantly sort of on her high horse. I feel like I have met people like her where what she said was – I'm sorry you had to see that. That must have been really shitty to have to go through all the photos like that. And it's just like, shut up. Like, see, shut up. I liked the way she did I was just like, it's so... Am I Helen? Perfect. No. I'm you, having that, a personal no. crisis listening to this. I'm surprised that you liked her because you're not like her at all. I didn't, like, love her. I just found her to be the least problematic maybe. I thought she was a good partner to Eleanor. Same. She was a shitty pretentious friend. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay, all right. I also think going back to like the behaviour of Eleanor and Charlie and how you said it was a blip, Zara, this is maybe not a correct point to make, but I was thinking about how this book is set after lockdown and how maybe some of these actions are indicative of being locked down for two years and like having nothing going on. Mm. And then after lockdown, you feel like, oh, I want to, you know, do something live. spontaneous and mm. like kind of be a little more selfish in that way. Because yeah. I feel mm-hmm. like these actions are so out of the blue for a human. <laughs> you know what I mean? You think it's like fucked to like emotionally have an affair with your sister's boyfriend for two years? Like that's messed up. I think you're absolutely right. I don't think that's a silly point to make at all. I think it's exactly why Diana Reid set the book in the wake of lockdown it's like I do think we all came out with a different mindset about what we wanted I think we lived for so long for other people you're staying at home for other people Mm. like that was literally the kind of world we lived in is that you were kind of a more national citizen rather than you know an individual person it's all about the collective yeah Yeah. and then you come out and you're like fuck it I'm gonna make decisions for myself god you're both very very clever I love that point didn't even consider that once as I read it but I agree with you both I think that makes a lot of sense one final thing I wanted to add Did we find it an intentional thing on Diana Reid's part that for a lot of the book, Eleanor's looking at her little sister going, God, she's always putting herself as the victim. 
And then in the main point of conflict in the book where Eleanor is confronted about her lies by Helen, she immediately assumes the victim mentality. I found that to be very interesting because I wonder if the things that we don't like in our siblings are sometimes indicative of what we don't actually like in ourselves. Yeah, I think that's bang on. I also think it says a lot about how when we are confronted with very uncomfortable things, the knee-jerk thing to do is to play the victim. Yeah. yeah. Or even like to lie. God, this yeah. book made me realise maybe I'm a shitty person too because <laughs> I was like, I fucking relate to that. Maybe I would lie. I, I also lie. think I would lie. One more character we haven't had time to touch on, but I do want to very quickly because he was actually my least favourite character. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, the self-pitying mid-20s white male, the corporate lawyer who wants to be a writer. I actually can't. I I know him. I even have a name for him in my own life. Is it wanker with, with a capital W? Oh, wanker. He's a wanker. I just was like, this guy is perfect. Yeah, he is yeah. perfect. The I, floppy hair in particular. Oh my God. I just, yes. Yes, that's all I'm going to say. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, I want to talk more about the broader themes and the strengths and weaknesses that we found in this book. But before we do that, let's hear a word from today's sponsor. Okay, guys. Just to put it out there, I had no weaknesses written down. Oh my goodness. Nor do I. Yeah. Oh, I have a couple, but they're only little. So we'll end on those. Let's, <laughs> yeah. let's start with we'll strength. ignore those. We'll ignore those. Nelly over here. <laughs> we will ignore those. <laughs> Mish, let's hear one of the strengths that you have written down. I think we touched on it just before the ad break, but the little lies that Eleanor told throughout the book, <laughs> I saw all myself in a lot of that. And I think this book really was like a mirror for some of my flaws it does make me really question myself like little passages where people behave in kind of fucked ways I'm like god I'm flawed and I would do that they can see why they did that what in particular the lie at the beach where Eleanor completely diluted and stripped away the grittiness of what she actually did I would do to that. Charlie yeah. I would do that I would I would, that. I would fudge dates or like omission lying by omission yes. I think I'm very guilty of and truthfully would potentially like to change that I also think it's a people pleaser thing yeah you are being selfish and thinking oh I'm trying to make them comfortable but you're actually just prolonging their pain like I probably hide behind no, you're protecting yourself yeah. I don't think it's a people pleaser thing at all I think you're saying it to protect yourself I think I sometimes behave in a way where I'm telling myself oh, I'm being a people pleaser I'm trying to make this easier for them the reality is I'm not people pleasing I'm just protecting myself and trying to make it easier for me yeah I mean we could go and talk about this for a long time but isn't people pleasing a lot about that anyway yeah yeah, yeah. Yep. like we we convince yeah. ourselves that people pleasing is about other people when it's got nothing to do with other people. I really do want to be less of a people pleaser and books like this make that very very clear to me I also just thought a strength of this book was every scene felt totally and utterly believable not once in this book did I kind of have that bird's eye thing of being like oh I wonder why Diana Reid did this here and I wonder why she made this person say this everything was believed during the reading process as fact as if these people actually do live in Sydney and exist and that is the hallmark of an incredible book to me yeah they felt so real back to your point about Diana really kind of making you think and be introspective about your own qualities I also found the way she talked about self-awareness very interesting I want to read a passage for you guys it is on page 126 and it reads Instead of avoiding Helen for Charlie's sake, Eleanor decided to pursue Helen and avoid getting caught. She could see that lying to Charlie, at least by omission, probably made her a bad sister. She thought she could live with that. She could cope with the knowledge that she was a bad person as long as nobody else thought she was. (laughs) And it's just so interesting because it's like the way up and the difference between shallow, like superficial self-awareness where you know you might be a bad person and like the properly introspective productive kind where you actually like turn that into action and do something mm. about it. I'm like, maybe I only have the shallow kind of self-awareness where I know about all my faults. Like I know I'm a people pleaser and that maybe I would lie to someone to like quote unquote protect them. But am I doing anything to change it? Dunno. Yeah, it's, so, it's really hard to sit with, yeah. isn't it? That idea, that line of like, if everyone constantly said no matter what for the rest of my life, I was promised that people would say she is good. Would I just... Do what I want. Do yeah. what I want. Yeah. That's a, like a very, very confronting question. Mm. <laughs> on the topic of good versus bad, good people versus bad person, there's a great exchange on page 280 between Eleanor and her mum where she goes to her mum to talk about what has happened. And this is how the passage reads. 
Under that loving critical gaze, Eleanor said very quietly, do you think I'm a terrible person? Oh, Eleanor, no. Mary reached across the table and touched Eleanor's wrist. Her hand was clammy from the tea. From what you've said, though, it sounds like you might have behaved a bit terribly. I really liked this passage for a couple of reasons. Firstly, if we're talking about sensitivity or self-flagellation, that idea of saying very quietly, do you think I'm a terrible person? I feel like we've all done that. And at the end of the day, it's kind of annoying. It's like, yeah, you <laughs> yeah. fucked up. Like, yes. like me before saying, am I Helen? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. But truly, don't you think we all do that? I hate myself. <laughs> I've done that so many times. And also that idea of like, you're not a terrible person and you did a terrible thing. Mm. Like stop trying to kind of wrap it in more than it needs to be wrapped mm-hmm. in. I mean, as we said at the top of this episode, Love and Virtue explored that incredibly well as well, what it means to be good and how our generation, and perhaps not just our generation, our society really does like to put people in boxes. Are they good or are they bad? Like what does it mean to be good or bad? And there was another passage, sorry, on 251, which I also thought explored this really, really well as well. Let me get it up for you. And it is when Charlie's finding finally telling Eleanor about the fact that she did have that emotional affair with Mark. She swallowed and blinked back tears. After your breakup, I felt sick. I thought she's such a good person and I almost betrayed her of all people. It would have been so typical, your stupid, selfish little sister letting you down, especially when I thought Charlie was crying now and paused to breathe once deeply through her tears. I kept thinking she's the best person I know. It's like this obsession we have with being like, that's the best person I know. She's the goodest of all the goods and I can't do anything to hurt her. When in reality, this book is teaching us that everybody is as flawed as each other. You can't just have like this one size fits all label. Yeah, for... we've all got a bit of Helen in us. Yeah, we've it's all got normal. a bit of all of them in us. Yeah. Any more strengths we want to talk about? Oh, sorry. I actually have one. <laughs> Back to Zara. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I just have so many passages I want to read out. Page 286 on sisterhood. I mean, the whole, oh, this oh, we probably beautiful. haven't spoken enough about sisterhood given how beautiful this thread of the book is. This is the passage. They were both laughing now and they both knew the reason. However different Eleanor and Charlie were, they were still and always would be capable of thinking the same thing at the same time. You can't grow up with someone, stitch your character from common threads, childhood, family, home, without forming similar patterns. So they both knew without needing to articulate it where their thoughts had turned. I love that. I loved that so much because I feel that very deeply with my sister. Like we'll constantly often be consuming the same media and she'll be quickly texting it before I've texted her or you'll be in a conversation with her or in a social dynamic and know you're thinking exactly the same thing. And we are very different in many ways, but that is true. It reminds me, I think I was at a cafe with my little sister Evelyn recently and we were having a conversation and then all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, turned to each other and pulled the exact same face. And it was like yeah. one of those moments where we both looked at each other and went, oh my God, we are the same. Like yes. Yes. in some ways, of course, we're different, but there is something deep within us where we jump to the same thing or we have the same instinct or the same impulse. And it's like almost freaky sometimes how it happens. And it's like that rock solid alliance too, that I feel like Diana very accurately depicted here, mm. where it's like, even though obviously these sisters fuck each other over, they do so deeply love each other. Yeah. And that was so clear in the book. Mm. Also, did you know, Diana doesn't have sisters. That oh, blows wow. my mind. Good on her. She really nailed she it. Really she nailed, nailed it. it. Mm. Finally, Michelle, yeah, sorry. Sorry. let's touch on your weaknesses. I'll sit back here and block <laughs> all been waiting. Okay, (laughs) there's only a couple of slight things I want to raise. I think some points raised in the book made me roll my eyes a little bit. I think it was overly serious or took itself too seriously at points. One example of this was a passage on 212 that read, that version wasn't for public consumption. In fact, an audience ruined it. You lost something when you performed a relationship for other people. That was all about PDA. I just kind of roll my eyes at stuff like that. I'm like, it's a little overly serious to think about your relationship with your partner is like, we're performing this in public because we're holding our hands as an audience. I don't know. I read stuff like that and I'm a bit like, it's a bit. I thought that was perfect because that was a Helen observation and Helen took herself too seriously. Yeah, that's fair. So I thought that was like bang on. Okay, that's totally fair. But (laughs) if if you're kind of centering yourself in this, which I would, because I get a little bit more into PDA as I get older. I used to never be into it. I'm a big fan. Maybe yes. that's why I made it. I wonder if there's, if there's that kind of bias to it to be like, no, fuck you. But you I felt thought, attacked. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel that was perfect for Helen. 
Okay. Yeah, I loved it. Sorry, Michelle. Uh, <laughs> my other criticism is there were some sentences that just did not make sense to me. Maybe I read them wrong. I'm nowhere near as clever as Diana Reid. But there were some sentences that I had to reread over and over again and then had to move on because I'm like, I actually don't get the point. I don't get what this actually means. For example, and I do have, I want to be self-aware, I read an advanced reading copy. So I'm not sure if there were some words missing from sentences and maybe that would give them meaning. One example is from page 260 that reads, a minute became several. They got off the train in silence. On the platform, a used condom, limp and overlong. I cannot make sense of that sentence at all. Yeah, does that mean used? I just assumed I that, that means no, no, what's like used and where is condom. the condom? Condom. Where? On the floor. It doesn't say that. On the platform, a used condom, limp and overlong. On the platform, lay, yeah. a used, but it just hasn't got that word. And then I'm like, why is that in there? I find sentences like that, of which there were some in this book, to be distracting. I find this really funny, and this isn't to poo-poo your point, but I have <laughs> written here that I think the writing is very clear. I was like, my favourite kind of writing is when like really poignant, smart observations are made in a really clear way. So the silence was I, like a used condom no, or a condom I, literally okay. was on the train platform. I imagine that to be the silence was awkward. There was nothing going on between them. They stepped over a used condom that was limp and overlong. And because there was nothing else in that exchange, their eyes likely would have gone to the ground. And that more an observation of like the mundane nature of that scene. I just think there's a missing word still there. It like, just seemed like a description of what was happening because, yeah. Yeah, like because saying, there was nothing going on between them. Okay. And it won't like, convince me otherwise. I, reading like that, I do find sentences like that confusing and distracting. You know what? Each to their own. Yeah. <laughs> Agree to disagree. <laughs> Guys. My other small, oh. sorry, my other small one was sometimes in dialogue, I wasn't, it wasn't quite clear to me who was talking when. And I had to go back oh, and reread a few times because I was like, who is saying what? I cannot figure out if this is Eleanor or if this is Helen. I would agree with that actually, is that sometimes when books, and I think it's kind of like, there's good parts and bad parts to this because for pacing, it's amazing when you don't have to say she said, she said, she said, he said, she said. But I do sometimes have to go to the top of the page and then go like every second quote to yep. work it out. Yep. Do you guys ever have to do that? Yeah, I do. But again, I, something I didn't notice, I guess from Diana's perspective, she was trying to like toe the line between saying it too mm -hmm. much and yeah. like taking the readers out of the story. Totally. Yeah. And I do want to stress Fucking loved the book. <laughs> yeah, Just yeah. a couple of things that in the reading process I did have to go through and reread over and over again that kind of took away from the experience. Yeah. And with that, weighing up the strengths and weaknesses, Michelle, what would you rate this book? A 4.5 for me. Loved it. Nice. I think it's really, really strong. One of my favourite Aussie books I've read in a really long time. I think she's incredible. I want to be inside her brain. I think it's a remarkable piece of yeah. fiction. Zara, what's it like being inside her brain? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you! I'm giving I'm giving it a five. Is that a, is that a compliment to myself? Yeah. <laughs> I'm also giving it a five. This was an incredible book, and if you want to hear more from me and <laughs> Diana Reed, just keep on listening because I got to interview her, as I said at the top of this episode, and we will play that for you right now. Diana Reid, hello. Welcome to the Shameless Book Club. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. We just had a chat off mic just now about how we were both in Milos around the same time and I was reading Seeing Other People in Milos, Diana. Yeah, and it's my favourite place in the world. <laughs> it's my favourite place in the world as well. I'm going to get things going, Diana. I know we're not supposed to judge books by their cover, but the cover of Seeing Other People is simply divine. So I think I want to start our chat with the most superficial question that I have written down just to get it out of the way. What is the book cover design process like? Because I also did notice that the font on the cover of Seeing Other People is the same as the font on the cover of Love and Virtue. So is that something that will like remain consistent for your next books? Great question. I also love the cover, but I suppose the answer for what the design process is like is just I don't make the rules. So um, <laughs> my publisher briefs a freelance designer called George Sard, who's amazing, and he does the illustrations himself. So on Love and Virtue, it was a crest, and then on this one, it's the three girls at the beach. So yeah. he draws them from scratch, and then they show me. And if I hated it, they would probably go back to the drawing board. But if I'm like, I think this color could be a bit different, then they're like, no, you're just wrong. And often I am wrong. So um, <laughs> fortunately that hasn't really happened very much because I've just loved both my covers. And I think that the vision for this one was to make it 
kind of same, same, but different. So that's why they kept the font consistent. And I imagine that's something that they'll do for future books. I love it. I love like the tie-in there because I took both your books on my holiday. I was just looking at them and I was like, ah, there's a bit of a link there that I don't know if everyone notices unless they do. And I'm just being like, "Mm, I'm so smart. (laughs) No, no, I definitely noticed it. I loved it. I felt like I had a brand, which is silly because like, it's just a serif font. Like anyone can use that. But anyway, it's mine now. (laughs) My next question is a little bit more serious, Diana. What's clear in seeing other people is how much of a sharp understanding you have of what it's like trying to be self-aware, selfless, and also like a self-respecting person in the world today. And you've also said in interviews before that you always knew you wanted to write about morality. So can you speak to that motivation, I guess, of why you think novels with a moral dilemma at its centre are so captivating for young readers? Well, a part of it's just personal. And I think that's because they're the kind of books that I like to read, like whether they're contemporary fiction or more kind of classics. I always like reading books that have a moral dilemma or that kind of question about how we should be living our lives, like a sort of ethical question. I think that novels are a particularly good way of exploring those kind of dilemmas, especially at the moment when public discourse can be quite righteous and people can sometimes be afraid of admitting that they feel ambivalent about something. Like I think there can be a lot of pressure to have a strong opinion one way or the other or like a take. Mm -hmm. Novels are just so useful because they create this imagined hypothetical space where the stakes feel very real. We can empathize. We can kind of emote with the characters, but also the stakes aren't real at all because it's not a world that you're in. Mm -hmm. And so I think it kind of gives people this imaginative freedom to admit to themselves more ambiguity than they might in real life if that makes sense in real life if someone presented you with those kind of dilemmas you might think oh well I'm the type of person who usually says this or my friends would think about it this way therefore I have to whereas I think in a novel you don't bring so much baggage to the way that you analyze situations because they're situations that are removed from you or from your idea of yourself I think that we can kind of get into grayer areas often when I read novels I'm surprised by the characters I empathize with they can be like the kind of people who if I met in real life, I would not like. And that's why we read, you know? (laughs) Totally. And in this book, I found myself liking pretty much all of the characters, despite them not being completely likable characters, which I guess is a testament to you and the way you write a character in full realistic ways. Yeah, thank you. That's the aim of novels, right? I think it's just that thing of if you pay enough attention to people and you try to understand them, eventually you'll probably find something that's human or likable. But as we move through life, we don't get that kind of insight and we don't pay that much attention. And it's nice that novels are this place where we can see what's possible if we can be bothered to (laughs) get to know people that much. Yeah. Diana, before I read it, Seeing Other People was described to me as a book I'd appreciate because I have a sister. And I definitely agree with that top line pitch now that I have read the book. But you so like accurately paint the subtleties of what closeness between two sisters means and what it looks like. And so I'm interested to know what was behind that decision making, focusing the story around two sisters. I don't have a sister. Really? Yeah. That's so surprising to me. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, I don't. But I do have friends who are women. Um, yeah. And some of them are very old friends who I've grown up with. And I think it was in some ways a reaction to my first book. So in my first book, I looked at two female friends who have a brief, very intense friendship that's ultimately quite toxic. And I think I'm always interested in the ways that women shape each other and the way that female friendships can define your sense of who you are, even if it's just in contrast to your friends or in competition or whatever. That was something I wanted to explore again, but I think this time I wanted to explore it in a more wholesome way. So I chose a dynamic where they do really shape each other and it is obviously a bit competitive. They do kind of define their identities in contrast to each other. But at the end of the day, they really love each other and they do try to support each other, even though they fail egregiously sometimes. (laughs) And I think also just from a novelistic perspective, I think family relationships are very high stakes than friendships because with friendships, if a friendship ends, it's obviously very sad, but it's sort of like, well, you'll have other friends in your life Mm -hmm. and you can get over that. Whereas if you lose your only sibling, that's a relationship that's by definition irreplaceable. That was also interesting to me to take this relationship that's so central to their lives and see how much pressure you can put it under. My next question, Diana, contains a spoiler 
spoiler, mm-hmm. but most people listening to this episode will hopefully have read the book. I'm sure they will have read the book. The ending is a very hopeful and like satisfying ending for readers where it seems like Eleanor and Helen might be able to make it work. What compelled you to relatively neatly, not completely neatly, but relatively tie things up at the end? Well, it was two things. One is that I did want to write a rom-com. Like I was very inspired by Jane Austen novels and that genre and the genre dictates that they (laughs) must get together at the end. But then the other thing was I was interested in writing a book where the characters actually change and grow and that was inspired by, and it sounds so nerdy, but I read this article about how there's this, I read this article about how there's a trend of Mm self-awareness in literature where self-awareness is presented as like the ultimate goal. And um, it was kind of saying that you have these characters that end the book recognising the ways in which they're flawed and that's Mm -hmm. seen as redemptive. But then the article was kind of like, well, no, self-awareness is actually just the first step and knowing that you're flawed can sometimes sometimes actually just be a way of like getting ahead of criticism, of being like, oh, I'm so self-aware and it doesn't actually mean that you change that behaviour. It just means that you like recognise it and you can laugh it off. So that was something I wanted to do with this book is I was like, what if I take characters who start the book very self-aware and the whole time that they're doing the wrong things, they know that they're wrong and then see what it actually takes for them to change. Um, and so, yeah, I think knowing that I wanted it to be about the kind of power of love and of relationships to change you, I had to end up with them right. together kind of to demonstrate that she'd become worthy of this relationship sort of thing. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you because my take when I was reading the whole book was that they both seemed like incredibly self-aware people, but it was like whether or not they would take action from that self-awareness was a whole other thing. Yeah, and I, yeah, as I say, like this is just something I read, like I can't claim this idea, but I do think it's very profound and I think it goes to the kind of irony of our generation, which is that we do sort of trade in self-awareness, but we don't always Mm -hmm. take it seriously and it's it can be such a like tokenistic thing almost to be like oh yeah I've like diagnosed my own flaws and I, yeah like I'm doing the work and I'm gonna grow and at the end of the day you're just kind of paying lip service to the idea of growth because it's almost like you're just ticking it off like yeah like oh I exhibit these traits like I did something fucked but it's fine because I know I did it <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and I think we see that in like even in like celebrities as well like I feel like when celebrities, okay, I don't, can I swear? Yeah, yeah, go for not. it. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I was going to say, when celebrities fuck up, it's so easy for them to just issue a press release being like, I know I've done the wrong thing and I'm really humbled and I'm doing the work and I'm, um, you know, I'm a work in progress. And it's just like real change is so hard, yeah. you know, yeah. and um, it's not just a matter of like spotting it's not just a a matter of diagnosis. Like you actually have to do something about it and the doing is very, very difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I, this next question of mine is a roundabout way of me asking you if you have a favorite character, but I know it's a very basic question. Mm. I wanted to know if you, if you were like rooting for a particular character or if there was one that you were hoping the audience would fall in love with. Yeah, there is. Yeah. I feel like it kind of, gives away oh well everyone's read it I suppose yeah I really like Eleanor and I think it's because she's sort of an unconventional heroine for a literary fiction because most I think most literary fiction especially contemporary fiction if there is someone in it who is conventional and corporate Mm -hmm. they're usually villainized like it's usually an older man who's sleeping with a younger woman who's very toxic yeah And I think Eleanor is conventional in all of the ways that literary fiction normally sneers at. Like she's got a high paying job and she cares about money and she wants to follow the rules, but she's a person too. And (laughs) I don't, um, I know that like people with corporate jobs don't need me to defend them. They're not like an oppressed class or anything, but um, I just think, yeah, I just thought if I could make her sympathetic, that would be kind of an achievement. Or, yeah, that would be harder than making, like, the sensitive artistic one sympathetic. No, it's interesting you say that because Eleanor was my favourite character too. And I think it's (laughs) because I'm a younger sibling and I saw a lot of that protectiveness of my sister in Eleanor. And so I felt this, like, closeness to her. So, yeah, you painted Eleanor very beautifully and realistically. 
Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I know we're chatting about seeing other people today, but I am naturally interested in what it felt like releasing a second book after your debut resonated with so many young people. Like during those few months between all of the attention, love and virtue garnered and then writing your second book, what kind of pressure did you feel if you felt any at all? Yeah, so I actually wrote Seeing Other People. I wrote the bulk of it before Love and Virtue came out. Ah, okay. Yeah, so my, when my publisher bought Love and Virtue, they bought a second book, which at that point I hadn't yet written, yeah. and they were like, start writing it straight away so that whatever the response is to Love and Virtue, it's not too it, – it doesn't influence it too much. Yeah. Um, so that was very good advice. So by the time Love and Virtue came out, I'd already done a not very good draft of Seeing Other People. And so, yeah, I guess – the answer is I didn't really feel too much pressure and I think that was in part, as I say, because people just hadn't read Love and Virtue yet. But I also think it was because I sort of I, I genuinely never expected Love and Virtue to be published Okay. and I was just so happy to have the opportunity to write full-time and to like go to my Word document every day that it just didn't occur to me to be too worried about what people think. I, yeah, I don't know. I just felt like blessed and happy. That is a beautiful response. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's almost obnoxious because I think people want to feel like, I guess, success comes at this like great personal cost, if you can call it success. But yeah, like I just enjoyed the opportunity to be able to write. And I guess the two books are so like individual and different. So it's like not like they are kind of, I do feel like they exist in similar worlds, right? but maybe it's because it's not like you were writing like a sequel or something. You were writing a separate book. Yeah, that's right. And it's not like you're necessarily writing for the same people or, and I also think that it depends on how you measure success. Like I, I personally want to improve my writing with each book and I, you know, like I want to try something different. So I wrote this one in the third person. The first one was written in first person and I'd set myself some, I guess, goals for things that I, as a writer, wanted to achieve. And at the end of the day, I'm the only judge of whether I achieve that. Yeah. Like I think, so obviously if people like the second one better, that's awesome and I'm happy about that and that's great. But it does, and it's probably good for my career, but um, <laughs> it won't change my judgment of whether that was a good use of my time, if that makes sense. Totally. Now, after you write a book, aside from your book editor, who are the first people you're sending it to in your circles? Yeah, so I send it to, I have one friend who I send it to before my publisher, um, who is a very close friend from uni, who I did some kind of like script writing and stuff with at uni. Yeah. And um, I just respect his judgment a lot. And he's an amazing writer. And then I show it to my publisher. Mm -hmm. So they're the only two people in the world who've read it. And then with this one, the first draft, I was like quite ashamed of. So we had to do a lot of editing before I was prepared to show it to anyone else. Why were you ashamed of it? I just wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> we're our own harshest critics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, um, we just had to do some edits, yeah. but we did them. <laughs> and that's fine. That's what the editorial process is for. Um, and then I show them to... Uh, yeah, I guess I kind of have like an open door policy. If any of my friends message me and ask to see it, I will just send them a soft copy. Okay. So yeah, it's not too structured. <laughs> Has anyone given you, like what kind of unexpected feedback do people in your life give you about your books? Has anyone ever said something and you're like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah, it's interesting. It happens a lot. Um, I think what's interesting is sometimes people will self-identify with bits in the book that I, and that's not at all how I perceive them. Like they'll be like, oh, I thought, you know, they'll be like, oh, I thought that the way Eleanor did X it is how I feel when I do Y. And it's not like they're accusing me of having based it on them, but it's just like always an interesting insight to how the way that people see themselves is very different from the way that you see them. Right. Has anyone ever like assumed that you based a character off them, but they were completely wrong? Yes. Yeah, that does happen. <laughs> that does happen a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, imagine. I guess that's like an extension of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, sort of phenomenon that, <laughs> yeah, you see people differently to yeah. how they see themselves. And also I, I do empathise with it a bit because I can see how, like, I can see how if you read a book written by a stranger and you identify with it, you just think, oh, that's really well written. But if you read a book written by a close friend and you identify with it, I can see how it is logical to think, oh, well, it must be me. Yeah. And that's not a kind of line of reasoning that's available to you if you're reading a book written by someone you've never met before yeah oh uh, yeah it's only natural yeah 
Diana, my last question is probably one you're tired of trying to answer or hearing, but I know a lot of listeners will be desperate for me to ask this. Do you have any more books planned for the future? And if you don't really like want to think about that yet, are you wanting to write about any specific stories or relationship dynamics in the future? Yeah, I do have. I'm working on a third book at the moment. I'm not... um, Thanks. I'm not really verbal about it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I can't articulate it. Um, but I think I'm always, I think all of my books start with a moral dilemma or a broad kind of philosophical idea. So yeah, it'll be more of the same in that regard. Amazing. Well, I think just the fact that you are writing a third book will excite a lot of people. So thank you for sharing that information with us. That's okay. You're welcome. And thank you so much for joining me today. I am very appreciative of your time. Oh, not at all. Thanks so much for having me. It's, um, yeah, it's such a privilege. God, Annabelle, good chat. Absolutely loved listening to that. Oh, I loved it too. Annabelle, keep talking. Oh, I will. (laughs) Guys, thank you so much for listening to the October installment of The Shameless Book Club. Next month, we will be reading Cleopatra and Frankenstein by Coco Mellors. This is an addictive and poignant debut novel about the shockwaves caused by one couple's impulsive marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Woohoo! Do you regret that? Because you really should. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) New York is slipping from Cleo's grave. Sure, she's at a different party every other night, but she barely knows anyone. Her student visa is running out and she doesn't even have money for cigarettes. But then she meets Frank. 20 years older, Frank's life is full of all the success and excess that Cleo's lacks. He offers her the chance to be happy, the freedom to paint, and the opportunity to apply for a green card. She offers him a life imbued with beauty and art, and hopefully a reason to cut back on his drinking. He is everything she needs right now. Guys, I'm actually really sad. I'm not in the next book club recording because I will be on my honeymoon. Not sad. Well, actually, I'm not that sad. (laughs) Life is really hard. Um, That book and that synopsis sounds so banger. You're welcome to take it on your honeymoon and tell us anyway. I will. Maybe some insights and we can add some quotes from you. <laughs> I'll give you like a little voice note Please from honeymoon. Yes. Yeah. Maybe if you want to read it, you're welcome <gasps> to do that. No pressure though. Oh my God, beautiful. I will do that. Guys, I'm sure you're like me. You cannot wait to read this one. It has been all over my social media. People have been absolutely raving about Cleopatra and Frankenstein. Make sure you pick up a copy and read along with the girls in November. Until then, come follow us on Instagram over at the Shameless Book Club or We've officially made the move to BookTok. Search the same username on TikTok. Come find us. At the Shameless Book Club, guys. Give us a follow. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. media this podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land always was always will be aboriginal land hello guys mish here i am the co-founder of shameless media thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time we're so grateful if you enjoy the stuff that we produce may i recommend our brand new podcast style ish Stylish, if you want to say it quickly, style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.